I don't know what is happening with this, but it's fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. It's fine. Whatever. Shit. I just looked at myself in the mirror or the the mirror. <laughs> My mirror's really fuzzy. <laughs> this is making weird noise. Stop it. All right. So it's episode uh, 113 of I'm Sorry What the Podcast. Thanks for joining us again now that we're done being sick, moving, working like crazy people, and just generally losing our minds. Now watch, I'm um, going to get sick. <laughs> shut up. You can't because if we go on another hiatus, we just got to be done. People are going to be like, they're just not doing it anymore. Nobody's going to listen to us. Well, hopefully you're still here. <clears throat> I'll listen to us. What? Anyhow, I'm hey. Amanda. That's Christina. Oh, that's me. I'm me. That, she is her. Um, <laughs> this may be interesting because I feel like. Been a beat and a half. Yeah, I feel like I Amanda, don't know what I'm doing. I was moving. Amanda got the vid. Mm-hmm. I was sick for like a fucking month. Gross, dude. Mm-hmm. It was no fun. Granted, only two weeks of that was the vid, but... Look at my lip is still fluffy. I had a biopsy in my mouth the other day, so... Yeah. Sounds fun, right? Not always. <laughs> and that's been our lives in a nutshell. <laughs> Got a biopsy me, I, in my mouth. This is me. I'm in a nutshell. I'm in a nutshell. How do I get out of this nutshell? Okay, no. <laughs> How's it going? I miss you. I know. I teased you with my presence for a couple days. Just a little, just a little rim job, and I needed more. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. I'm sorry. Whoa, that's not the kind of friendship we have, Nielsen. <laughs> All my mascara I was looking for the other day. So you pulled it out now? It's here the whole time. Just sitting on my desk. Right by the Midol. Don't know why it was there. My computer's saying something. It didn't cut in the audio at all, did it? No. Okay. As far as I know. Well, I was we'll talking. Fu- <laughs> we'll fucking find out. <laughs> we'll fucking find out. All right. Um oh, shit. Shit. I don't what do we do? I it's don't know. Halloween. What to do my hands. It's past Halloween. Well, it's Halloween that? now. Oh, no, that's me. Hey, stop it. Okay, sorry. So we're past Halloween. We're past spooky season. We're into food season. Mm, I want to slide down a mountain of mashed potatoes in a canoe made of dinner rolls. That is all the carbs on the plate during Thanksgiving. <laughs> I'm more for the protein and the fucking green bean casserole, bitches. Ooh, grand beans. I do enjoy me them also are you okay no no i'm not talk to people anymore listen i don't i don't (laughs) i'm heavily medicated now because i was emotionally unstable for a solid three weeks and it was like (laughs) time to get the prozac out and now i need help i need mental health help because i'm i'm just a little too, too spicy I had a little too much spice in the brain, you know? <laughs> Where's the serotonin, you bitch? So <laughs> your Nganga got too spicy. My with your human blood. <laughs> it was not good soup. <laughs> it's not even a turtle. So Yeah. Fuck you. Over. It's not even a turtle. All inside jokes that nobody fucking understands, but you're welcome. <laughs> you know, 
it's fine. At this point, hopefully people understand that sometimes we just talk and it doesn't even mean anything. So who knows if they're inside jokes or if we're just saying words. They're just words. We're just you know, like your words, funny man. Or what is it? Like your funny words, magic man. <laughs> I don't know. I know what you're saying, but I don't know the exact words. <laughs> I'm the worst when it Either comes way. to any of that. Uh, caught a vibe. Okay, sorry. If you can't tell, I've been on TikTok quite a bit. <laughs> That's Christina's life right now. She works. Um, and she's on TikTok. I'm not working on TikTok or I'm taking a nap. Mm-hmm. And sometimes... She's hanging out with her, her niece who's five. <laughs> it's true. I do, I do that a lot. <laughs> she's my best friend. She's my best friend. Um, I also take lunchtime naps. And so, like... I'll come out of my office and go take my lunchtime nap. Everybody leave me alone. And I slam my bedroom door and I crawl into my bed and take a nap for half an hour. <laughs> and then the other day, my dad knocked on the office door and he like stuck his head and he's like, um, I was wondering if instead of taking your lunchtime nap, you could help me in the garage. <laughs> I was like, I suppose. I guess I could, Yamas. Dude, so I went to Target and I got all these fun things for Halloween because I'm so... My phone's buzzing. I just need to silence it. (laughs) Um, Because I'm so used to making like stuff for Mary Kay, like little goodie bags and for Mm -hmm. my classroom. I don't have a classroom to do it. And I haven't been actively doing Mary Kay because life's been a fucking crazy mess and so now i just have stuff and i'm gonna have to save it for next year or something now i just have stuff and things i just have pumpkin eggs and striped bags (laughs) hey that rhymed (laughs) eggs because you're a minnesotan eggs and bags just because of my accent (laughs) (laughs) not for real all right we should get started or otherwise people are gonna be like okay well i guess i'm done listening done fucking listening to these assholes now um (laughs) all right what do you got for me um i forgot to look up how you pronounce this dude's name so (laughs) i'm just gonna wish you luck just so you guys know we are back and still mediocre at best so And not quite ready for action, but we do it anyway. It's Two fine. feet first, didn't learn how to swim. It's Let's fine. go. Fuck it. All right. So I'm going to tell you about Mary Stauffer. Sounds familiar. It's a Minnesota case. Okay. I had never fucking heard of it before. And I was like, <laughs> it's because I wasn't born yet. It happened in the 80s. Okay. So she was born in <laughs> West Duluth. Uh, and her family moved to Hermantown when she was 10. All three siblings graduated from Hermantown High School. She then attended Bethel College in St. Paul and graduated in 1965. She married uh, Irv Stauffer, a Bethel College seminary student, and the couple went to the Philippines for the first time as missionaries for um, 1967 to 1968 um, to teach. And then prior to that trip, Mary taught ninth grade math for two years at Ramsey High School. Okay. Remember that little nugget in your head. Got it. So on Friday, May 16th, 1980, Mary Stauffer was having a busy day. She was running all over town um, trying to handle last minute preparations because she and her husband and her family, her two kids were going to take a four year trip 
to the Philippines again to do missionary work for Holy teaching and stuff. So they years. were, they were like, I got shit to do. Cause we're not going to be back for a bit. Um, for a hot minute. <laughs> Uh, she brought her six-year-old son, Steve, who had afternoon kindergarten to get a haircut in the morning. And then while he was in school, she ran some more errands and then took her daughter, Beth, after school, who was eight, to Carmen's Beauty Salon off Cleveland Avenue in St. Paul to get her hair done as well. Okay. Around 6.30 that night, when Mary and Beth did not return her home, Irv, Mary's husband, started to get worried. Uh, Mary's sister, sister Sandra came over for what had been a pre-planned dinner. Like they were, it was like a going away dinner, Okay. but Mary and Beth were not there and they hadn't heard from her either. This was in the eighties. So no one had a cell phone. Mm-hmm. Um, Irv called the salon and the hairstylist confirmed that uh, Mary and Beth had been there. Beth had gotten a haircut and they had left around four 30. Irv spent the next several hours calling local hospitals to see if they had been admitted thinking that maybe they had gotten into a car accident and Mary just hadn't thought to call because she was in the panic and everything. And, mm-hmm. um, but they weren't able to get a hold or they weren't able to find them. So he called the local police. Um, however, at that same time, the police were more concerned about the disappearance of Jason Wilkman, who was a six-year-old boy who had been abducted that afternoon. Okay. So it took a, over two hours for, police to show up to Irv's residence um and they basically just asked kind of simple questions and treated the whole scenario with what they thought was like a domestic dispute and Mary just left just took off maybe with Beth for a night or something like that and just kind of again there was a child missing so all hands were on deck kind of for that and this, this case was a child of, missing with the mother, so it seems less nefarious. Yes. Okay. So, however, the next morning, that changed. So, investigators had begun their search for Jason Wilkman uh, by searching a park near where he had been abducted. And in that park, in the, like, brambles and bro- bush of that park, a license plate was found. And when they ran the license plate, it was for Mary Stouffer's car. Oh, so they... Took the car and ditched the plates. Uh, what? No, what they believe is that when the car was pulled into the park, it was tried. It was like almost like it was trying to be hidden in bushes, and the plate got ripped off when they drove off. Oh, uh, because it wasn't like hidden; it was like caught up in brambles and stuff. Oh, okay. Um. So now, having found that, coupled with the description of Jason's friend who was with him when he was abducted, of the car, they believe that Mary. And Beth's disappearance and Jason's abduction were connected, but they weren't sure sure how. Okay, interesting. So as many as 300 officers and volunteers began searching the area. Uh, Initially, Irv was the only suspect. The police interviewed him and administered a lie detector test, which he passed. However, it didn't help that the newspaper ran an article about the kidnappings with a sketch of the suspect and then run it next to a photo of Irv. And there was a similarity between the two because of dark hair and dark glasses. (laughs) So they were just like, this is her husband. This is the suspect. And then they ran it and it was like, wait, they look alike. But he, okay. He was soon um, deemed to have not been involved. Right. And, um, 
So 10 days in, Irv received a letter, which was supposed to be from Mary, indicating that she and Beth were not missing, but had just gone away, and that strongly suggested to the police to stop involvement or Mary would never be seen again. Which they thought was kind of like... Why is she threatening to... Right. Why this is weird. If the police are involved, so that's weird. Yes. Okay. So seven and a half weeks passed. So it was like 53 days in total with no word and no leads other than that letter. Um, So Irv had, this is a quote from one of the articles that Irv had said. He said, during the seven and a half weeks, there were so many fears and concerns. We did not know if we would ever see them again. There was the, that was the difficult part. Faith is all I had to hang on to. I hung on to my faith in the Lord that he would take care of them and keep them in his care. So at one point during the ordeal, um, the FBI was involved. Agent Gary Samuel called Irv and told him that an unidentified woman's body had been found in Southern Minnesota and was being transported to the Twin Cities. And it was more just like an FYI. I didn't want you to hear about this, like on the radio or the news. Mm -hmm. We don't know who she is, but they did find a body. I'm not saying it's her, but I want you to know that if it is found out that it's her, I want you to be the first one to know, not hear it off of the news. So they retrieved Mary's dental records, but were able to eliminate her as the possible victim. Um, Then on Monday morning, July 7th, 1980, the Ramsey County Sheriff received a phone call from Mary Stouffer. Stouffer. She was put on hold twice before she was put on the phone with Sergeant Mike Fowler. Uh, Mary had found a dry cleaning tag in the closet that she had been stuffed in at the house where she was being held and said, I am at 1960 North Hamlin Avenue and told the police basically where she could find them. This is what she quoted. She said, I, this is Mary Stouffer, uh, Arden Hills kidnap victim. And I would like someone to come and get us. Uh, and she said, I would never forget his words. His words were, is Jason with you? And that's when I knew that Jason had never made it home and was most likely dead. Oh no. Oh, that gave me goosebumps. Yes. So we'll get there. So Beth, when the police arrived, they found Beth and Mary hidden behind an old car. Um, They, (laughs) Mary said, they were so glad to see us. I had a feeling that they really wanted to hug us both, but I wasn't really in the mood to hug anybody at that point. Fair. (laughs) Just don't touch me. Thanks. So at the same moment that Mary was being rescued by the police Irv was in contact with Samuel the FBI agent in regard to a another letter that Mary had written and received that morning from her parents in Hermantown Um, Samuel informed them that something was transpiring but didn't provide any details and a sheriff's deputy soon arrived at the apartment and brought Irv and Steve to the sheriff's office Steve is her brother Mary's brother okay or I'm sorry Beth's brother um, Steve's oh a little boy um And that's when Irv finally learned of that they had escaped and that they showed up at the police station and they were still chained together with cables and bicycle locks. Lord. So now we're going to go back a little ways. Okay. Okay. So the owner of the house, uh, 1960 North Hamlin Avenue, where Mary and Beth were kept locked up for 50 day, 53 days was Ming San Shu. Ming San Shu? Yes. He was born on October 15th, 1950 in Taiwan. When he was eight years old, he moved to Minnesota with his mother and two siblings. His father, who had died three years later, was a professor at the University of Minnesota. 
Shu was described as violent towards his younger siblings, often beating them both during adolescence and adulthood. In his teen years, he was reportedly engaged in criminal activity as a juvenile, such as starting fires in apartments of three strangers and throwing rocks at vehicles. Uh, for his role in the arsons, he was ordered to participate in psychotherapy at the age of 14. Wow. And ac- according to his mother's testimony on trial, um, Shu often lied about uh lied but was persistent about being right was uncontrollable as a child and took no responsibility for his physical behavior thus causing her to be very afraid of him she described him on the stand as someone having no feelings like a dog from 1965 to 1966 shu attended alexander ramsey high school in roseville minnesota Uh, where he came to have a crush on his ninth grade algebra teacher mary stouffer oh so they like they like knew each other. We'll get there. So this was in the sixties and she wasn't kidnapped until the eighties. Right. Over 20 years, 15 something actually. So throughout the years, uh, she fantasized about Stouffer wrote stories, detailing sexual fantasies, ranging from consensual to non-consensual and detailing rape. His disturbing imagination wasn't enough to satisfy his cravings. And he began relentlessly stalking Mary and attempting to track her down throughout most of the seventies. And Mary had no idea she was being stalked. I don't like that. That's gross. Mm -hmm. In 1975, she located where he believed Mary had uh, been living in Duluth. He broke into the house with a firearm intending to kidnap her, but she did not live in the residence. That was the residence of her in-laws. So her husband's mother Uh, and father. Okay. Um, they were forced to the ground, tied up and threatened to be killed if they reported the crime. And because of this, they did not report that home invasion until the kidnappings. And they realized who it was. Okay. Um, um, as he continued his search for Stouffer during the intervening period, he realized that she was in the Philippines where she and her husband worked as missionaries. So he couldn't get to her. And okay. then they had returned to Minnesota in 1979. So a year later, he learned that Stouffer lived at the Bethel University campus and began to stalk her again. To the extent that he spied on them from the woods outside of the apartments uh, and that he saw them packing crates in the home. So he believed that they would be leaving soon. And that's why. um, Urgency. Yes. So shortly before. Yes. This was in 81. 80. 80. Okay. So shortly before the abduction, he attempted to break in through the patio doors by using a blowtorch and also via storage area. He cut holes in the floor underneath their bed. So it was like an apartment, but it was a house. And they, he did, crawled under the crawl space and cut holes in the floor under their bed. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. He even knew where they kept the spare key to their apartment. During her captivity, he had told her that you're lucky that I got you when I did with a minimum of your family exposed because I I would have taken done anything to take you. So his stalking continued until May 16th, 1980, when he approached Mary and her daughter outside of the salon with a gun. Mary originally thought he just wanted directions. Then when she saw the gun, he thought he wanted the car and she was willing to give it to him. But then he obviously had other plans. Uh He forced them both into the car and instructed Mary to drive north. Uh, Mary attempted to appeal to him that God could help if he was in trouble. 
Um, he basically just told her to shut up and drive. Um, she said, I don't really think he was ready to hear the gospel at that point. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think he was prepared for it. While they were driving, a police officer pulled up behind them at an intersection and she threatened that if the car turned the same direction as them, he would shoot Beth. So her daughter. The vehicles ended up heading in opposite directions, so they drove to a remote wooded area in Anoka County where Shu bound the mother and daughter together, covered their mouths with medical tape, and shoved them into the trunk. Um, and while he was do- he drew- drove then to an underdeveloped area near Roseville, and um, in preparation for retrieving his van from a nearby parking lot, opened the trunk and put the vehicle's massive tire spare tire on top of Mary and Beth. Oh, dang. And then at the same time, while he was doing this, two neighborhood boys approached the car. One stayed at the front while the other, Jason Wilkman, went to the back to investigate what was going on. Uh, And at that point, he grabbed Jason, basically just threw him on top of them, slammed the trunk, got in the car and drove away. Oh, my God. And his friend um, didn't see them in the trunk because he was at the front of the car. So when he reported that he was abducted, it was just Jason they threw in the trunk. Jason got snatched up and thrown in a trunk. Right. Uh, Wow. So the car drove out uh, and they were stuffed in the trunk. So it was them on the bottom, the tire, and then Jason on top. And Mary said she tried communicating with the young boy who was only six Mm -hmm. um, and said he was too frightened to say much other than his name and age, he, which was the same age as Stephen, which is her son. So that was kind of mm. hard for her, too. He wouldn't stop crying, said he needed to get home because he needed to visit his grandma that weekend. Um. Oh, break my fucking heart. I, I know that. I know. Oh, that made my stomach hurt. Okay. So she drove to the Carlos Avery Wildlife Management Area, where he took Jason out of the trunk and into the woods. He didn't open the trunk when he returned and just started the car and took off after. So it was later determined that he beat him to death with a tire iron. Just a little six year old. Mm -hmm. Dude, just. You could have just let him go in the middle of the woods. It would have taken him days for someone to find him. You could have just shoot him away before he came near you and saw anything in the trunk. He's fucking six. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm so mad. So it's going to get worse great Uh, sweet okay so he ditched mary's car and tied them up in a black windowless van he eventually took them to an electronic store that he owned um sound equipment services along university avenue he allowed them to use the bathroom gave them juice before blindfolding them in the dark of night putting them in the back of his van driving them to his family home in roseville uh six miles from mary's apartment Mm. uh he placed them shackled and chained together in a back bedroom closet measuring four feet long by 21 inches wide and removed the doorknob from the inside and locked the door. Um, on day two, snug. On day two of the kidnapping, he brought Mary out of the closet, spread out a blanket on the living room floor, blindfolded her, and tied her to a piece of furniture. What occurred then was a three-hour videotaped interview where he slowly revealed who he was. She didn't recognize him. He said, you remember a student who developed a formula for an algebra problem? Mary said that when he said it, she remembered him, but he didn't give me any pro- any problems in class. During the question and answer session, Shu said that the B- minus grade Mary gave him as a freshman was a blemish on his otherwise spotless record. And because of that, he was unable to receive an academic scholarship. 
Since his father had died, he couldn't afford to attend college without a scholarship and was drafted into the Vietnam War um, and ended up as a prisoner of war. He blamed all his failures in life on Mary, and none of that happened. So he made that all up in his head. He made it all up in his head. He actually finished number one in his high school class and could have earned a scholarship to virtually any college based on his GPA. He was voted most likely to succeed by his peers and reportedly attended the University of Minnesota, never served in the U.S. military, and instead started a business in the Twin Cities. So is this like one of those times when because of an obsession or whatever it may be, like the Jodie Foster thing, for example, Mm -hmm. he thought that this is what she wanted, right? Like, is it like that where in his brain, he must have just created this whole scenario as to why it would make sense to somebody else as to why he held this grudge and wanted to take her and whatever? I think so, kind of. Um, I don't know. I don't understand. He had written... Okay, okay, so he had written fantasy short stories of actresses and other women he would rape and he would and then would beg him for sexual favors. Among the women on his fantasy list was his ninth grade math teacher, which was Mary Stouffer. Okay. He revealed to Mary a three-step plan to avenge the wrongs his obsessed mind believed she had caused him. Um he, she had asked him what he was going to do for revenge, and he be then he basically stripped her clothes. And then he said, I think you can guess. I don't want your scars to be physical. I want them to be emotional. I want you to feel dirty, debased, and degraded. Gross. At which point he videotaped at least six hours of rape sessions until he was forced to return the video camera he had on loan. And the rapes continued thereafter for the next 53 days. Oh my God. So now I'm thinking it's just, it was just a way to make her feel like she did something so terrible to him. Because when he says, I want you to feel dirty, degraded, whatever, it's just another mind thing for mm-hmm. where he's like, yeah, this happened and you did this and it caused this, this, and this. So then she has that guilt on top of everything else that he's going to do. And my later on when she was interviewed for this, one of my favorite quotes from her, I think it's like the most amazing and beautiful thing I've ever read. She said the, the reason that because she rebounded like very quickly from this whole ordeal Mm -hmm. and everything. And she said that this had happened to her physical body, not my soul. He could not touch my soul. Therefore I was, it did not affect me or something Mm -hmm. like that. I was like, Oh, her soul's still clean. So she's still clean. He can't make her feel dirty. Right. And she, her brother said that's such an amazing way to look at it. I don't think there are many people who could separate those, those two. Mm -hmm. Um, So eventually Mary worried that she would return his attention to her daughter uh Mm -hmm. he but he had said to her that whatever else i'm not a child molester um so he had never raped beth or make her watch the rapes but he threatened to repeatedly um Mm -hmm. and he wasn't averse to basically playing my games um mary wasn't showing him any affection and he wanted her to show affection Mm -hmm. so he insisted mary be more loving toward him And Mary said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I love my husband and I promise to be true to him until death. And and what you ask, I cannot do. So he pulled out like a plastic bag and asked her, have you ever watched someone die of suffocation? Because you're going to watch your daughter die by suffocation. Um, He then tied the bag over Beth's head and would threaten her and torture her repeatedly with a bag, bringing her to the point of suffocation and then releasing the bag. And then not wanting to watch Beth die, she eventually kissed him on the cheek and he was satisfied with that oh my god yes 
Um, after that, she said was the most horrible of the rape sessions, but at least Beth was safe. On another occasion to show his control, um, when he was unhappy with Mary, he went to work and left Beth in a box in his van for hours on a hot summer day. Not And Beth wasn't sure if it would kill her or not. Mm-hmm. Um, he eventually relaxed his strict house rules. Uh, they were always bound together, but they were allowed to eat in the upstairs kitchen. And by the 10th day, they were allowed to shower. He provided Beth with a TV, bought her board games like Uno. He would play them with her while eating dinner and always called her Bethy. Beth, in in Beth's interview, she said he was weirdly affectionate in a very sick parental way. It was icky then, and it's creepy now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I agree, Beth. Meanwhile, during this whole thing, he he returned to his electronic store he ran his business he paid payroll he went to the supermarket he got his oils changed he was just living life as normal mm-hmm. i I'm, i don't just wait i don't have words and i'm so upset just wait midway through the ordeal she took or she took them on a road trip in a rented winnebago uh, motorhome to a job fair in chicago uh, the way he said is, wouldn't it be cool to go on a vacation in a motorhome? So he rented one, tied them up in it, and drove to Chicago. Vacation. And at that point, Beth had said, I'd been stuck in a closet for four and a half weeks, so the thought of being in a motorhome sounded okay to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess. Yeah. So they were still wearing the same clothes as the day they were kidnapped. So he brought Mary to a shopping mall in Madison, Wisconsin, so they could change their outfits and he could take them out under the pretense of being a family. He kept Beth close to him to prevent Mary from telling anyone about the abduction. Mary did try to find ways to alert authorities. She used a traveler's check from her purse while shopping, hoping the bank would be notified of the transaction. Um, Even though Irv had alerted the FBI to the existence of the check, the FBI apparently was not notified when the check cleared. Uh, Left alone in the Winnebago, Beth tried yelling to a group of teenage boys outside the window, and they basically laughed at her and told her to stop making up stories and go away. Um, During the trip, Mary had taken a Bible from a motel room and read it to Beth on a daily basis, and they basically like prayed every day for them to be released. Uh, At one point, Beth told Mary, we have to pretend to like him. Um, that's a powerful statement because the Bible says to love your enemies. So we have to pretend to like him. Mm. So near the end of their captivity, she even took Mary and Beth to Como Park on the 4th of July to a Hardee's restaurant and the University of Minnesota Agricultural Campus in St. Paul to see the fireworks. It's so weird hearing these names mm-hmm. and pretty much knowing exactly where they are. Yeah. So... Mary said that there were at least three Ramsey County Sheriff vehicles that went by, but I couldn't do a thing about it because he always had his gun and he always had Beth. Mm -hmm. Uh, So by Monday morning, July 7th, she was starting to realize that he couldn't stay in the family home forever and started telling them about a camper he had bought for them to live in. And Mary thought that if he took off with them, there would be no way or hope for anyone to find them. And they were Mm -hmm. basically like, it was now or never. So when he went to work that morning, he had done so and he had attached the cable connecting Mary and Beth through the top hinge of the closet door and looped it through, allowing them to move the length of the cable and more freely around the bedroom. But she, re- but Mary remembered how her father used to take the hinge pins out of doors at home. 
Uh, so minus just using that cord that was in the door, she popped the hinge pins up out of them. Mm -hmm. uh, Beth panicked, worrying that he would find them and kill them. Uh, but Mary basically said, it's now or never. You need to calm the fuck down. We're doing this. And Is that what Mary said? No, that's what Christina said. I'm I was sure like, the God-fearing woman said, you need to calm the fuck down. She did. So <laughs> um, they were able to call the police and they were rescued. So we're back now to where I had left off in the first place. <laughs> so the FBI raided um, his shoes workplace and arrested him without incident. He was taken to Ramsey County Adult Detention Center. And within days, Mary was back up north visiting her family. Uh, the, the thing that I remember the most, she said, um, is that shortly after the rescue, um, or this was Irv, I was outside working on it on something and i walked around the corner from the backyard and i thought there she was and it was just amazing mm. i was like oh we um, and each other so much and her brother had said that he was she was exactly the same person she seemed unaffected it was because of her faith that she relied on to pull her through just because he was in jail though didn't mean that she was done with his demented ways so mm. he offered fifty thousand dollars to another inmate richard green to kill stouffer and her daughter to prevent them from testifying against him in court and to help him escape from jail um that information was communicated to the fbi so he was tried in federal court uh for that as well uh, before the trial prosecutors had mary watch the nine hours of video so the rapes on two occasions First to try and put the rapes in sequ sequential order, and then another time to interpret the transcript. So she had to watch it twice. Um, but only the three-hour interview was actually shown in open court. When Mary was called to testify, she had to walk between the prosecution and defense tables, then route to the witness stand. As a federal prosecutor, Tom Berg, began his questioning, she rose from his chair and lunged at Mary as she was walking by. Um, but he Ber Berg blocked the path. And federal marshals wrestled Shu to the ground. So after a 10-day federal trial, the jury found him guilty of kidnapping. Prior to the trial, he had told one of the psychiatrists that he knew the location of Jason Wilkman's body, but would not reveal it. Sentences was withheld until a deal could be made with Shu to locate Jason. The Ramsey County Attorney's Office agreed to not charge Shu with first-degree murder. And in late October, he led authorities to Carlos Avery where they found Jason had been killed by, which is a park, which they had found Jason had been killed by blunt trauma to the back of the head, perhaps by the car's missing tire iron or the handle of shoes gun. Uh, so he was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 30 years and during the trial for killing Jason. And then this time in Anoka County District, Mary needed to testify again. So the FBI agent said to Mary that this will be your last time on the stand. He had tried something in federal court. He hasn't tried anything in state court but if he's going to try anything it will be now so mary was being cross-examined by um Ming Shu's attorney and he attacked mary using a knife that he had smuggled into the courtroom dude she said as i'm answering questions all of a sudden he jumps up from his chair runs behind me grabs me by the neck and holds a knife in front of me he screamed get back or i will kill her but the lieutenant who had been outside the courtroom waiting to testify rushed in and that basically just grabbed Mary off the stand and brought her back to the judge's chambers. She received 62 stitches on her neck and face, and the second trial was delayed. Wow. So did he slice her throat then? He had, like, cut her, like, because he was holding it to her, and she got ripped away from him. So I think he cut her. Okay. Leg. Yeah. Um. So after the trial resumed, he was found guilty of kidnapping and second-degree murder and was sentenced to 40 years to be served concurrently with the other sentence. 
So in 2010, a judge ruled that even if he was paroled, he would be committed to the state sex offender program in Moose Lake. Um, and that he met the legal criteria for indefinite commitment. So mm-hmm. he'd be put in like a mental institution. Uh, the judge relied heavily upon reports by psychologist Paul Reitman, who spent many hours evaluating Shu and deemed him a continuing threat to the community. He said he is a very tormented man because he is delusional. He goes from one aspect of being delusional, being nice, let's go on a family trip. It just re- uh, represents the moral chaos. His psychological life is basically hell. Mm-hmm. He stated that he would be concerned if she was ever released. He might feel that he spent 30 years in prison because she lied. We don't know that. And that's why he has to be scrutinized in intensive psychological treatment as well as sex offender treatment. Uh, she was, Mary was relieved to, at the time to hear the judge's decision, decision since she had told her during the, her confinement that he would take revenge on the family if he was ever caught and released. He said, don't think that even if I get caught and put in prison for 25 years, don't think I will forget about you when I get out and I will go after you. And if you're dead, I will go after your kids. Jeez. He is currently housed in the medium security federal penitentiary in Marion, um, Illinois. The Stouffers have returned to the Philippines in 1981 came back to the United States for good upon retirement more than a decade ago. And they now live in the same Herman town house Mary grew up in. They uh, turned down a chance of filing a civil lawsuit, even though she was business was worth a reported quarter of a million dollars. Irv had said, I thought at the time that he hurt Mary Beth and he Mary and Beth and he'd hurt us as a family. This is a way that we could get back at him and hurt him. But Mary said, no, vengeance belongs to the Lord. I had to respect her at that point and realize she was right. Despite all the trauma the family went through, Mary says she remains in their prayers. She says, we continue to pray for him because God is so merciful. I have not felt the need to reach out to him. I just feel that would be unwise to make any sort of contact with him. It's in God's hands now. Yes, ma'am. And that is my story. Wow. Yep. Nope. I don't think I've ever heard that. The name sounded familiar, but maybe it's just one that I saw when looking up like Minnesota cases or something, you know, but I don't, didn't know that story. Isn't Isn't that weird? It's a lot. A lot. There was a lot in it. I told you that. I'm like, it's a stalking case. It's a survivor case. It's a murder case. It's an abduction case. It's a rapey case. So many things in one. We're back at it, kids. By the way, Gold Star, there's a lot of stuff in that. Well, now I want to look up. It's a little late to give a warning. Look up Mary. She's so cute. She's like a cute little grandma. I was like, that's the first thing that came up in images was an actress. And I'm oh. like, I know you. You're not her. It's lifetime. All right. Are you ready, kids? I'm ready. What are you going to tell me about? Um, mine is also an abduction case. Oh, good. Everybody. Oh, no. Just know you're not safe anywhere. Ever. You're never safe. It's true. My um, parents keep not believing me when I tell them all the ways someone could break into our house and kill us. Have you ever watched? Okay, so New Girl, they're like 27 points of entry. I, that's, I, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, can I get a Simply Safe up in this bitch or something? And that's I'm all. like, you're gonna, what if I'm here alone? All I've got is the two dogs. This is scary. <laughs> There's a dogs. there's a known murderer in my in my town. Oh, he just murdered his wife. You're not married to him. They can't prove it. It's allegedly, allegedly. 
that was another okay so the original thing i was gonna do this week it was a he had never actually been prosecuted for anything and so i'm like i don't want to just like throw that out there legally and have to say allegedly constantly so we're gonna do a different one yeah so i'm gonna tell you okay i don't i don't want to start it sounding really excited because it's not a fun story (laughs) Uh, i'm gonna tell you the story of ursula herman nothing nothing oh good because i was like i have never ever even seen how ursula herman it's from germany Germany. Mm-hmm. So Sorry, Ursula, I don't know why I said that. You're fine. Uh, <laughs> Ursula was a well-behaved 10-year-old girl from Etchen, Germany, um, who on the 15th of September in 1981 went to her first day of school. Uh, after school, she practiced piano with her brother Michael like they did regularly. That was like their daily mm-hmm. thing. She'd go home and they'd practice piano. And then at about five o'clock, she hit the road on her bike to go to gymnastics. Okay. Um, her gymnastics class was in a village. It's Schadorf. Schadorf. It, there's a lot of German. Schadorfen. Schadorfen. Because I heard it. Like, because I listened to a couple little like snippets of this so I could hear the things. Yeah. But it was, it's still just like. I can't do all of the consonants. You know what I'm saying? Sprachen hard. Deutsch. I don't I have know. a hard time. Um, but anyway, so it was in the village of Schnorf. <laughs> Schiedorf. It was in the village of Schnorf. Okay. Anyway, so she took this class with her cousin. And her cousin lived just like a little bit away from the class. And this was only like a 10-minute bike ride. They said it was like three uh, kilometers. And so all it was the next village over all she had to do was draw go through this like well-tracked um trail in this forested area that is like very hopping they said it was just like the place to be so it wasn't weird for her to drive through or ride through it so it's um, like a well-traveled path mm-hmm, exactly okay. um so the towns were really close and like i said only a small wooded area between them um after the gymnastics class ursula went over to her cousin's house and played Barbies (laughs) and then they had dinner and right around 7 15 Ursula's mom called her sister which is her cousin's mom obviously Mm -hmm. and was asked to have Ursula leave because it was starting to get dark and she wanted her to get home before it was night okay (laughs) um and so Ursula did that within five minutes she left the house took off but Ursula never made it home uh, after about 30 minutes or so of waiting, Ursula's mom called again and was like, hey, just kind of want to get an estimated time on when she'll get home. She must not have left right away. And the aunt's like, mm, she left 25 minutes ago. She should be home by now. And it was like mm. instant. They called the police. The dad, Ursula's dad, left his house and started walking towards that village. And her uncle started walking towards their vill- village yelling for her. And the police came in and within like, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> within like an hour, the police, excited. I am. It's such an interesting story and I'm really happy that I stumbled upon it. Um, but not that but, it happened, just so we're clear. No, but it, <laughs> it was just one that I had never heard, but I found very weird and interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so anyway, so they started walking, yelling for them. Within an hour, the police had begun searching the woods as well. Um, <clears throat> they also, firefighters came in, the volunteer firefighters. The neighbors were all walking around, searching and yelling for her. Um, and as they searched, it began to rain. Mm-hmm. But that didn't stop them. It it was nighttime. It was raining. Made it really hard, almost impossible to see anything. But the police and a lot of other people were still out there searching until but they dawn. kept trucking. Mm-hmm. Um, and at about eleven fifteen, one of the dogs led an officer into a bush while searching the near lake. So this like trail was didn't go right up next to the lake but there was a lake not far from the trail that there were you know trails off to get to mm-hmm. um so they were searching by the lake trying to get a scent to see if maybe she fell in if something happened you know that sort of thing um but this dog took them totally off of the lake and into a bush and that's where they found her red bike but no oh. ursula so um uh, like I said, they just kept on going until dawn. Um, And at that point is when they really intensified the search. Mm -hmm. Um, They called in helicopters. Dozens of officers joined that were coming in for their shift the next day. And the other ones stayed that were already on. And just everybody pretty much like nose to the ground trying to figure this out. They also called in boats and divers to swim around and look in the lake. Um, But There was nothing to be found. Um, On September 17th, about 36 hours or so after she went missing, uh, Ursula's family received a call. Her father answered it and said, hello. And there was no response. Then there was a well-known like jingle from a radio station in the area. That's creepy. Mm -hmm. For three seconds, just did its little do-do-do-do-do. And then it was silent again. And then it played again after a couple seconds. Um, and then it was hung up and they're like, what the heck it like, why? I don't like that. This makes no sense. So the parents recognized the signal as the like traffic announcements on this radio station jingle. Mm -hmm. So when they're going to that like segment, that's what they would play. Um, it's called like buy on three radio station. I don't know if it's just like initials, but Mm -hmm. they kept saying buy on in the different things I listened to. So within a few hours, there had been three more calls um, that were very similar in contents, like same idea, play the jingle, no words were said. Uh, The police started recording the calls, obviously. And it was just kind of a mystery as to what it meant because they were like, I don't understand. There's not any message whatsoever. Why do they keep calling and playing this jingle? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the next day, the family got a envelope at their house that was marked urgent. Uh, inside was a ransom note that was put together from newspaper clippings. So it literally looked like a stereotypical ransom note. Ransom note. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was in broken German. They said that it wasn't a very fluent put together note. They're kind of confused as to why. Maybe it was a red herring. They don't really know, but... Mm-hmm. It was weird. And what it said was, we have kidnapped your daughter. If you ever want to see your daughter alive again, then pay two million Deutschmarks. Yes, I said it. I had Deutsch. I practiced that. Deutschmarks. It's like mm-hmm. 
I had to practice it because I kept wanting to say douche marks. And that's not, <laughs> that's, not, that's it. not right. Um, so 2 million Deutschmarks ransom. Um, it also instructed them to confirm on the phone after the jingle rang that they would pay the ransom basically. So they're like, oh, well, maybe that's what they're trying to do is just get our confirmation that we're willing to pay the ransom after the jingle would ring, right? Mm-hmm. But this was the next day. Um, and at the end, it said, if you call the police or do not pay, we will kill your daughter. Mm-hmm. And so the note was supposed to be delivered the day before <gasps> when the calls were happening. But for whatever reason, it didn't get to the house in time or when they thought it would. Um, cause they dropped it. I'm assuming they wrote the address on it, dropped it in a mailbox or something and it got put into their mailbox, but whatever happened, it didn't get there the day that they thought it was supposed to. Um, and that afternoon when they got the envelope, so it was the day after it was supposed to get there that afternoon, they got a call and Ursula's mother answered this time and she agreed to pay the ransom after the jingle paid, played, like they said. Mm-hmm. And then requested to have proof that her daughter was still alive. Um, and she, so the proof she wanted, she's like, just tell me what Ursula's soft toys are called. Her two favorite soft toys. Like, cause Ursula would know that you wouldn't mm-hmm. know that. But the call was silent. There was nothing behind it. Then she yelled, talk to me, say something, something from Ursula. And the call hung up. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So then the family was like, not wealthy. Mm -hmm. 2 million. That's a lot. They don't have that. But um, one of their neighbors and the local government pretty, they raised as much as they could. And then the neighbor and the local government pretty much covered the rest. So they got within hours, got this uh, 2 million ransom. Uh, But the next day, um, they received another urgent ransom note. And this one requested them to pay in 100 Deutschmark bills that were used. So they obviously had already been in circulation. So it's not going to be something that's like Mm -hmm. an obvious flag um, in a suitcase and to have her father deliver them alone in the yellow Fiat 600, no faster than 90 kilometers an hour, which is about 56 miles an hour, just random shit. Um, And then the note said to wait for further instructions on time and day as to when they would meet. Okay. Okay. So they waited. Nothing. There was no other calls, no other letters, nothing. Um, They waited for two weeks and the police searched the forest again because they're like, well, clearly they're not getting back to anybody. So Mm -hmm. they did another thorough search. They made a grid. They all went out with these like metal rods, they said. And there was like 100 plus police officers that showed up. And they like were poking the ground with these rods to see if there was any soft spots, any anything they found that they can't see in the underbrush. Mm-hmm. Um, and on October fourth, nineteen eighty-one, which when you said eighty, I was and I thought you said a year later. I was like, oh, mine's in eighty-one too. <laughs> um, about nine a.m. in the morning, a police officer found a small clearing between a group of trees, and when he went to poke the ground with his with his rod okay I'm sorry it's okay I also wrote penetrate and I decided not to say that after not a good rod to use the word penetrate but he hit something hello 
Oh, that sounded like it was coming from your house. It wasn't. <laughs> Christopher, we're no recording. Barkers. Christopher, <laughs> stop barking. <laughs> Rude. <laughs> Anywho. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so he shouted for the other police officers because he hit something hard. And they came running over and they gently started to kind of push away the ground to see what was there. And eventually they got to a brown blanket. They're like, huh. They pulled the blanket up. Then there was a wood board that they were like, this looks like like a top to something, like the top to a box. This is suspicious. Right. This is weird. So then when they lifted that up, there was another wood board. This one was green. Um, It was just so weird. And it was 70... 72 centimeters by 60 centimeters which is about 28 inches by 23 inches so Mm -hmm. about a little under two feet a little over two feet Mm -hmm. right um the green board was bolted by seven bolts and when they tried to lift it up they couldn't get it up so they had to pry it up from whatever it was stuck to um and inside of this box that they opened was 10 year old ursula's cold and lifeless body Yeah, it's not, that's why I was like, I don't want to come into this thinking that it's going to be like this really happy ending, because it's not, um, so but when you I said started cold saying and lifeless, it, so was she alive the whole two weeks? No. Okay. So I'll get to that in the very next bullet. Okay. Um, everybody at the scene, all the police officers became very emotional. Everybody got very mm-hmm. invested in this case and felt really close to it, um, and two officers went to the parents and told them about the discovery. And the first thing that the mother asked was, was she tortured or hurt before she was killed? Because she was just like, I just don't, I can't imagine her getting, you know, mm-hmm. being tortured. And they really couldn't answer that at the moment because she hadn't been sent to the medical examiner yet. Right. Well, she was getting sent there. So they had no answers yet. But autopsy showed that she had not been abused at all before death. Uh, okay, that's good. So Ursula had died between 30 minutes and five hours of being buried in that box. Mm-hmm. Um, they believe she was drugged or something so that she wouldn't fight back because there was no sign of defensive wounds. There were no sign of struggle. The inside of the box didn't look like anybody had been moving around or doing anything to try to get out in it. Mm-hmm. So they're assuming that she just was passed out when she was put into it and asphyxiated she suffocated from lack of oxygen um so that was so they had they really had kidnapped her and then accidentally killed her yeah exactly so they had masses they clearly had had intention to keep her alive and to actually get this ransom because when they investigated the box uh it was about 55 inches or 139 centimeters tall so it was like just it was like a they compared it to a phone booth but like a little bit smaller mm-hmm. where it was tall but narrow yeah um and there was a seat with a hole in it and a bucket underneath it so she could use it like a little toilet so it was like a panel on one side with a hole in it and the bucket was under there mm-hmm. and then she had another panel that was higher that kind of sat right where like a table would sit mm-hmm. right Um, And on that table, there was a portable radio that was tuned to buy on three, which was the same station that that jingle came from. Um, And I wanted to show you a picture, but I couldn't find the one that I saw in this little mini docu 
documentary mm-hmm. that I was getting some like tidbits from, but it was like they showed a little like diagram of what it was. And so there's the table, the seat, and inside of this box, this little tiny box, they had three bottles of water. So like big liter bottles, mm-hmm. it looked like uh, 12 cans of Fanta, six large chocolate bars, four packs of biscuits, um, an apple juice, two packs of gum, and a portable light. They also had put in 21 books, including comics, romance novels, and westerns. So they thought of everything but fucking air. Here's the thing, though. They did think of air. It just wasn't done right. Fucking dumbasses. Yeah. So the box was fitted with a large with large plumbing pipes as a ventilation si- system. Um, so let me, I do have a picture that I wanted to show you that I figured I'd put up so you can see kind of how they did it. It's a good idea in theory, but they didn't have a fan. I don't know how well you're going to be able to see this. Okay. Um, do you see yeah. the top of the box? There's yeah. the like coiled pipes. They didn't have a fan or any sort of like motorized suctioning happening. So the air didn't get circulated enough to actually make a difference mm-hmm. um uh it just it's so sad a pump is the word I was looking for they didn't have like any sort of air pump to circulate the air um when Ursula was found she was sitting on the seat with her head tilted back and her eyes closed I have another picture this is a nice so you can kind of see how she was oh I don't know if you can see that at all oh there we go oh so that's kind of how it was it had the seat with the bucket all of her like stuff to eat and drink is underneath I don't like the table. That. Make it go away. I don't like it. <laughs> um, sorry, <laughs> but so she was found with her head leaned back and her eyes closed. There was a jogging suit in a bag on her lap, so she had extra clothes and everything for that they had put in there. Um, they believe that there had to have been more than one person involved in this because of the weight and the awkward size of the box. Because and it would have been noticed if there was machinery out there. Um, it was about 61. Anyway, it, it adds up to be about 135 pounds and then it's also tall and long. Mm -hmm. So they were like, there has to be at least two people involved in this. Um, they also believe that the kidnappers knew the area really well because of the remote location that they chose. And they had even attempted to camouflage this. They were the ones who planted the small spruce trees as almost like a barrier between like a grove of trees okay mm-hmm. so they had put those five spruce trees out to kind of hide from the walking path that was anywhere near it right mm-hmm. um there was even only one there was only one fingerprint found um in the whole thing and it was on tape in the box and that like they it's just so Everything just sucked. <laughs> how, just long, one of those things. how long after she was kidnapped did she die? Well, I think they put her into the box right away because they, they were planning for her to stay alive and get the ransom and then tell so her they where don't she know was. how long after she was they kidnapped. They said either between 30 minutes and five hours of getting put in the box. And so whenever okay. the box was put in there, and I'm assuming it was right away because otherwise it would have said how many days after she was kidnapped. Mm-hmm. Um she passed away because of lack of oxygen. Um, Unfortunately, uh, 
<clears throat> at this point, because they went to search for more evidence in the area, it had been two plus weeks of searchers walking through the area, mm-hmm. of press and media coming in and doing stories, trying to get attention. In. Yeah. Uh-huh. So there was no, there were no footprints. There was nothing to be found. Um, they did find a bell wire strung through the forest, like right off of the path. And they thought at first they thought that it was from the kids. Cause they found them before where kids string them up and it's like their little, you know, they go to do something in their area. And so they know if someone's trying to walk in, Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but after a while, they deduced that they probably it could have been because of where it was. It could have been the killer's way or the kidnapper, I guess, because they weren't planning to kill her. But um, the kidnapper's way of telling if they're when like a victim was coming, if someone got into the area and then they'd have one person on either side be able to snatch up and go. Right. Um but when they went to go get it, it was gone. Like after all this was happening, they're like, okay, well, where it is, they went to go get it, it was gone. So they okay. didn't even have that to like go off of for stuff. Okay. Um, anyhow, uh, everyone was freaking out in the area. Obviously, parents weren't letting their kids leave alone. And it was one of those like small towns where in the 80s where everybody just kind of, you know, latchkey kids, everybody was running around had their responsibilities and it was fine mm-hmm. um my brother even... just came in and shut the door so I just texted him because I wanted to make sure there wasn't oh, yeah. an emergency so sorry continue um the media even showed up at Ursula's funeral and tried to talk to the distraught family oh my god Ursula's brother Michael he kind of um <laughs> so he shows up throughout this whole story he seems to be the one that was the closest with her or something because mm-hmm. he just seems very invested in all of this so he lashed out he knocked cameras to the ground when they got put into his face and he just kind of at this time he was still a teenager like he wasn't old um, but anyway so police interviewed anyone who was close to Ursula and offered a 30,000 Deutschmark reward to anybody who could lead them to the perpetrators. Um, they received hundreds of tips, and many of them led them to a man named. They said Varner, but it's it's spelt Warner. Mm-hmm. Um, Werner, Werner, and I. That's the first, only time I say his first name, so it's fine. It's fine. Um, Mazurik, who was thirty-one years old, he was a car mechanic, and he lived about three hundred meters from Ursula's home. He was married with two kids, and he was a tall, beefy, short-tempered man, according to people. Mm. He also had about $140,000 Deutschmark debt, so he needed money. So they're like, okay, well, some things are getting checked. Mm -hmm. Uh, One week after Ursula was found, uh, Mazurik was questioned by police and he didn't seem to have an alibi but then the next day he told the investigators that he was playing board games with his wife and two friends hmm yeah it's like I don't really know what I was doing when that happened right next to my house that's one of those things that I'm always like would I remember I'm like yeah if it was a day that in my neighborhood someone got kidnapped I'd be like what was I doing that day like two days after it happened when you find out that there's something going on right so I'm like yeah no you know you would know anyway 
Uh, his home was searched with no clues found, and his print was compared to the fingerprint that was in the box, and it didn't match. The police still thought that he had something to do with, with the case, though, so in January of 82, he was arrested along with two of his friends. Okay. I don't, I don't know where they have the, like, basis of being able to arrest him. Okay. But maybe they they knew more at that point than I Mm -hmm. know, because I'm like, I don't think that that would have stuck around here. Um, The police around these here parts around here. um, They they still thought he had something to do with the case. So they kept going. Uh, He was interrogated, but nothing came of it. And then he ended up having to get released because they didn't have enough to keep him after he got arrested. Okay. So he had his like 72 hours or whatever it is being interrogated and whatever on and off. And that was it. The end. Bye because they couldn't keep him. Um, one month later, an acquaintance named Claus Boxinger. As in Santa? Well, yes, but with a K. Klaus. Klaus. There you go. Good job. Klaus. It was like Claus as in Santa? <laughs> Klaus Faffinger. Faffinger. <laughs> it's P-F-A-F-F-I-N-G-E-R. It's Faffinger. I, I looked that up. I know. I'm not arguing with you. I'm just saying it. It's fun. It's. I know. It's weird. Klaus. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> finger. <laughs> just so many Fs. Uh, he was questioned. His landlord called in a tip saying that he had seen him with a spade tied to his moped. Not a spade. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. So he tied a spade to his moped within the time around, like, right before... Uh, Ursula's disappearance so they're like maybe he dug a hole this all just seems so like okay maybe he did this because he has a shovel he had a spade not even a shovel just a spade lord have mercy on me anywho he claimed to be innocent but eventually his story changed and said that he had dug a hole for Missouri in September of 1981 weird Mm. um in the forest and he was promised a thousand douchemarks. Mar- douche See, I told you I keep wanting to say it. Deutschmarks. <laughs> um, and a color television for helping him. That's So what, basically he just dug a hole. Yeah, that's what he's what he saying. claims. Okay. That's what he's saying. But then he also said that he had witnessed um, Missouri putting a box in that hole. Mm-hmm. So, so you police, helped him put it in the hole. Right. Because, <laughs> buddy... No. So the police asked him to lead them to the site in the forest where he had dug the hole, and he just wasn't able to. Um, And he later recanted his whole confession. So. Uh, And then in 1982, a couple students um, brought the the bell wire. The students brought that pull bell wire that was Mm -hmm. tied up, brought that to the police because they had pulled it out of the forest and until that was released to the public they didn't realize that it had anything to do with that case so they did they brought it back but there was nothing on it that made a difference because they had already touched it it basically was inadmissible so right um there was also a prob- probability tree indented on one of the ransom notes as if like on a paper ahead like before it they had written probability like one of those branched things yeah yeah um so they were like maybe it's a student that did it like a young person because they're running out of options here they have like nothing 
Um, one of the of the characters in the comic books drove a Fiat 600, so they were like, maybe that's why they asked the father to drive a Fiat 600. They mm-hmm. were like playing this, but obviously the case went cold because there was just nothing to nothing. go off of. So in 2004, the case was reopened and scoured again for different things that maybe new eyes could see. Um, With DNA technology much more advanced at this point, they were able to develop a profile off of one of the screws, like one of the bolts in the box. Mm -hmm. Um, And in 2007, they found a potential match. The DNA was on file because the match, it matched the DNA from a case where a woman named Charlotte Bollinger um, was beaten to death by her nephew, but the suspect had to be eliminated because at the time he would have been eight. Oh, so they're not really sure what happened. DNA? What's his dad doing? So they're not in the same area as far Mm -hmm. as I could read, but they, they don't really know how his DNA actually matched this DNA. So contamination or something. That's what they're thinking. Um, that something happened or like the profile error or something. Cause this was still 2005, 2007. Like it's much better than the eighties, but still not. And it's old ass DNA. So yes, exactly. So Ursula's kidnapping wasn't considered a murder because the proof of intention to keep her alive was there. So there was a uh, statute of limitation for 30 years, which meant at this point, They only had four years to figure it out or else that just was going to be gone to the ether. Mm -hmm. Um, They took a deeper dive into the men who were the suspects in 80 and 81 and 82. um, Zurich and Pfeffinger. Pfeffinger. Pfeffinger was dead. So they couldn't really do much about that or question him, but Zurich was still alive. The The police began to... um, monitor Missouri and tapped his phone deployed an undercover agent to try to befriend him um his house was searched and dna samples were taken but nothing matched they did find a tape recorder from his house which the police claimed was the recorder from the jingle that was played um a sound expert claimed that the recorder had a technical um distortion that made it likely that it would be the same one that played the jingle that they recorded but I'm like there's multiple recordings happening how can you Mm -hmm. how can you say that with definitive proof yeah how can you confirm that the error wasn't in the thing you were recording not the thing that we were listening to (laughs) my my words right here were seems less than concrete but okay (laughs) so um may 28th of 2008 mazurik was arrested and charged with ursula's kidnapping his trial began in 2009 and the parents didn't attend the trial because they were like this i don't want to dig up all these old wounds i don't want to hear any of this the details anymore but michael did michael showed up oh yeah uh he pleaded not guilty mazurik did and the evidence was all super circumstantial. Mm-hmm. Uh, prosecution said that he had the mechanical know-how to make this box, even though apparently he didn't know how to make it. Anyone can make a ventilated. box. Yeah. <laughs> T- tell me about Especially it. I have, badly, I have my thoughts. I could have made a fucking box. I have my thoughts on this, and it's like, it's interesting. Um, he needed money. 
he had a criminal record with fraud and forgery. So he has like a money based crime in his past. He also killed a dog in 1974. So I don't like this guy anyway. Um, he had pulled garbage out of the garbage the dog had. And in response, he locked him in the chest freezer in the basement. Oh, that's not nice. His wife said that she had gone down there to get some food out of the freezer and found the dog dead. He said that the punishment was exile to Siberia for the dog. Ew. Quotation, quotation around that. It, that was one of the things I was like, okay, we'll lock him up anyway, because fuck this you. This fucking bitch. Uh, so they had the tape recorder. That was like their only thing. And then the sound expert who said that it could match. Um, which Missouri claimed he had just purchased purchased recently at a flea market. And he's like, but he had no receipts and there was nobody at the flea market that can say that they had that flea market. I know. Okay. So then there was Klaus's confession, right? Mm -hmm. Which he recanted. He said he, it didn't, it wasn't real. So... (laughs) Uh, they thought that he maybe purposely misled them in the forest so that they would let him go because he knew all these details that no one should know. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 2010, Missouri was found guilty and sentenced to life off of that, off of that mm-hmm. first off. Um, and his wife was also on trial for like condoning it and being like involved. Aiding and abetting. Whatever they're saying she knew and she didn't do anything about it, but she was acquitted for because there was no evidence because there's no evidence for either of them. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael was less than convinced that Missouri was guilty, though. Her brother was like, no, this does not. I'm not convinced. He had been given access to the case files before the trial and he had read all 6000 pages of them. And he's like. I don't understand how Klaus is being treated as credible. He's an alcoholic who claims he has hallucinations on a regular basis when he was in the police department. And the details that he said, Michael believes are things that he could easily have found in reports on the case. Right. Um, Plus his story was ever changing to fit things until they were able to get him to go into the woods and then he couldn't bring them anywhere. Right. Which is like, a perfect example of false confessions exactly you plus them leading questions and shit like that get this the confession wasn't even signed at the time and the investigators actually had to write it down again from memory yeah oh fuck uh, it. Uh, no nope out thrown out the whole thing's thrown out i want justice for ursula but this is not how you go about it right and the dog and the dog well see that's where i'm like he can get locked up for that because that was ridiculous I have no proof on anything else. Mm -hmm. Um, Michael was a music teacher also. So he also had some expertise in the, in sound. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I don't understand how this can be conclusive at all. It's recording, recording, listening to a recording of a recording. It's going to be different and distorted no matter what. Right. So he's like, that's not even, uh, that's not even proof to him. Right. Uh, the court refused to relook at the case after Michael came to them with his extreme doubts. He's like, this isn't right. He shouldn't be in jail. Um, you need to relook at this case. And so he came up with a plan because they wouldn't relook at it. And in 2013, Michael filed a civil claim against Missouri for 20,000 euros for um, causing him tinnitus 
uh, from the trauma of the case, just hoping that that would make them look at it because Missouri would just say, no, I'm not guilty. You need to, you know, like Mm -hmm. drop this case. But they didn't even like give him the chance to. In August of 2013, they ordered Missouri to pay Michael 7,000 euros (laughs) for his tinnitus. Not what Michael was hoping for. And he literally had like his whole life had basically fallen apart because he got so like wrapped up in this. And so just because he's like, I want to find the right person. Right. And so he him and his wife were separated, got separated during this time. His career was floundering because he was known as the crazy teacher who didn't get hired anywhere anymore. Mm-hmm. And his health was declining because he was fully focused on this retrial. He said, I'm not convinced that he's guilty. Neither am I convinced that he's innocent. Mm-hmm. So we just need more proof either way. Please. Thank you. Nobody. So the case is closed technically, but I don't think it's closed right. Because that's literally all it's of just, the information. That's not. No. And even if he is guilty, even if he did it, that is not enough evidence to convict someone of life in prison. No, not. It just doesn't make. I, it seems like they wanted to close the case and they're running out of time. And they're like, you know, we'll just stick it on this dude. Because it seems like the closest match we had. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's, they stopped looking at him in the 80s because mm-hmm. they're like, there's not enough evidence to convict him of anything. Right. <clears throat> so, obviously, I'm frustrated because I'm like, this poor little girl is just walking home. Right. Riding her bike home. But then on top of that, this guy who... May have done it. May, may not have. May have done it. Was getting convicted on things that are, like, Very, shaky at best. Like extremely circumstantial yeah like Like not even like solid circumstantial evidence like well and it's like bits and pieces of circumstantial evidence you can build a strong case on circumstantial evidence if there's enough of it in different areas of the case right but But there's there's nothing Mm -hmm. so all right well good job it was one of those that just turned into a (coughs) i ate a snickers bar and i just inhaled a peanut (laughs) I'm dying. I'm dying um, from swallowing nuts. Story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> the title of my biography. <laughs> dying from swallowing swallowing nuts. nuts. <laughs> oh shit. No. I know was... the tragedies in my life. I'm just kidding. Right. <laughs> oh, French toast kids. We did okay, it. Kevin. All right. We did it. We got our new episode done relatively smoothly yeah sorry i keep thinking i hear stuff but i think it's like on your side and it's in my headphones then i'm like who's here who are you what is Uh, that thanks for sticking with us guys thanks for being here and listening to us you were the best it's been an odd few months man welcome 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 home (laughs) welcome to our bosom come sit on mama's lap come and sit on mama's lap let me um, tell you on, about moiter moiter uh follow us on the social medias um we are back to our regularly scheduled programming Mediocre so keep an eye out wednesday so. hey eh. it's relatable right like that's what we're going for <laughs> right <laughs> right <laughs> all right but don't forget to spread the word and uh 
you, you spread yourself. I don't, I don't have anything funny to say to that. Normally I, normally I make it weird, but I don't. I got nothing. I got nothing this time. So just spread it. Spread it. Spread it wide, kid. Oh, nope. Oh, there well, we go. That shit. took it weird. Okay. Bye. Well, later. Bye. <laughs>